the presence of all of us to open God's Word. Um, I preach as a struggling and needy sinner to a bunch of struggling and needy sinners. We are in need of Christ and what He alone can do and has done for us. And praise be to His name that we can always run to Him. Jesus, who is strong and who is kind. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask Him to be with us by His Spirit and to help us as we look now to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father, You alone are God, as has been confessed many times this morning. You are in the heavens, and You do everything that You please. And we pray, Father, because we are Your people who have been called by Your name, who have been united to Your Son, we pray that You would come and minister to us by Your Spirit. Give us eyes to see the truth and hearts that would receive and love it. We pray that You would show us from Your Word the truth about ourselves, about what we were, and about what we would be if it were not for Your grace. And we pray that You would show us our Savior, His love toward us, and Show us the sufficiency of what He has done. We pray that in seeing these things, that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged, that we would be stirred toward love and good works. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, repetition can be useful, especially in the Christian life. Because we are fallen, we tend to forget things. Things that really matter. We tend to forget things that are essential. I reference Philippians 3 verse 1 quite often where Paul writes to the Philippian Christians, to write the same things to you is of no trouble for me and is safe for you. I'm mindful of Martin Luther, who I have also referenced recently. When asked why he always preached the gospel when the saints gathered, he said, well, I preach it every week because we forget it every week. Repetition can be very useful in the Christian life. So can making things personal. A lot of times in the, the way that we speak broadly, it's kind of a negative thing to make things super personal. But there is utility in the Christian life at points in making things very personal. You can take a big truth, a soaring truth that at times feels odd and general and ethereal. You can drive it down like on a wedge on the human heart and mind. You make it personal. The apostles do this a lot. Think about Paul and his letter to the Galatians. This is a very personal thing that he asks them. He means to be provocative and He said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, I see what he's driving at. Of course he's right. If we begun by the Spirit, we began by the Spirit, we will be completed and perfected by the Spirit. Paul takes a broad truth, the Spirit's work in our life, the truth of how we're transformed, and he drives it down very personally to the Galatians and what they are wrestling with. 
what they are thinking about, what's going on in their church. Well, in our text today, as we find ourselves back in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's going to do this very same thing again. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry about it. We'll be getting the verses to the sermon text on the screen behind me. But Paul, in verses 11 to 13 of Ephesians 2 that we're going to consider today, is going to be repeating some things, essentially, that he's already written. And he's going to be saying things, writing things in a very personal way to the Ephesian Christian. Paul in Ephesians 2 has already written of the plight of all mankind in verses 1 to 3. He has already written of the grace, the power, the mercy, and the love of God that has resulted in salvation, the salvation of God's people in verses 4 to 10. Well, today, as we look at verses 11 to 13, Paul is going to reiterate all that stuff. And while some of what he wrote in verses 1 to 10 certainly was personal for the Ephesian Christians, everything he writes in these verses that we're looking at today is very personal. It applies to them in a personal and specific way. And we're going to consider God's word this morning as it applies to us. So before we go any further, let's read these three verses from Ephesians chapter 2 together, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. We thank God for his word. What I want to do today as far as a plan for the rest of our time, I want us to consider the text. I want us to look at these three verses together. We'll do that in a reasonable amount of time. And then I have two lengthier reflections that flow out of the text. So we're going to look at the passage, we're going to look at the three verses, and then I'm going to offer two reflections from them. So let's begin by surveying these verses. A brief summary of Ephesians 2, 11 to 13 would be this. Remember what you were, verses 11 to 12, but because of Christ, it's not like that anymore, verse 13. Remember what you were, verses 11 to 12, but because of Christ, it's not like that anymore, verse 13. Put your eyes on verse 11. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. He's writing to these people, the Ephesian Christians, who were Gentiles biologically. They were Gentiles ethnically. They were not Israelites by birth. They were not Jews. He goes on, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. The Ephesian Christians are Gentiles, not Israelites, according to the flesh. And also, quite literally, they had not been circumcised like the Jews would have been, like the Israelites would have been. There was a division between Jews and Gentiles at one time between circumcised people and uncircumcised people. There was a division. Circumcision 
was how God's people were marked off under the old covenant. How did you know that you were a part of God's people? Well, you had circumcision. How did you know that you were a part of God's people? Well, your household was marked off by circumcision. In other words, the Gentiles were generally excluded from the people of God for a time. They were outside. They were not inside. We'll come back later to Paul's language of circumcision being made in the flesh by hands. Let's look now at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Again, he's speaking very personally to these Gentile Christians. Remember what your condition was. It wasn't just that there was a division between Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't just that, hey, you're not an Israelite. There's a lot that goes along with that. There's a time, there was a time, when the Ephesian Christians were separated from Christ. They were separated from Messiah, from God's anointed one. They were separated from the one who is the light of the world. They did not know him. They were separated from the only one in whom righteousness dwells. They were separated from the only one who is redemption and life for sinners. They were also, Paul says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What's the deal with that? They were not citizens of Israel. The nation with whom God was in a covenant relationship. They were not a part of that. And so they were not a part of the people of God in that sense. Paul says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The promise he's talking about is none other than the promise of the covenant of grace, the promise of the Christ who would save his people. These Gentile men and women were not a part of that. They were strangers to that. The Old Testament covenants, there are a number of them, but in particular, if you think about the Old Covenant, it is comprised of the Abrahamic Covenant, the covenant God made with Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, and then also the Davidic Covenant, the covenant God made with David. Those three covenants comprise the Old Covenant. Those covenants were God's way of unfolding and revealing redemption. Paul here is saying, that the Ephesian Christians, in that they were strangers to the covenants of promise, not a part of the covenants that were associated with God's promise of salvation. They were not a part of the covenants that were associated with God's promise of the Christ. Paul also says of the Ephesian Christians that you, because of all of this, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Therefore, because of everything we've just been considering, the fact that you were separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Therefore, your position was hopeless. You were destitute. You were godless. You were without God in the world. Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians of their state before God called them. He's been extolling the mercy of God the love of God to them, the grace of God toward them in salvation. And he is here again reminding them, remember what you were. 
Apparently in Paul's mind, there is value in remembering what they were. Hold on to that thought. Verse 13, Paul writes this, but now, this has a very Ephesians 2, 4 feel, right? But God, we considered that a couple of weeks ago. This verse has that same feel. You were without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the saints say, Amen. You were separated from Christ. You weren't citizens of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Your situation was hopeless. You were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were far off have been brought near by His blood. Because of Christ and because you are in Him, You've been united to Him by faith. Everything has changed. Everything has changed. Two important things for our consideration briefly about verse 13. First, consideration. The Ephesian Christians, this is quite clear, have been brought near through their union with Christ. This is what Paul has been writing that God made us alive together with Christ, that we have been raised with Him, that we have been seated with Him. This is the language of the entire New Testament, is one of being in Christ, being united to Him. So the Ephesian Christians have been brought near. They were far away. They were hopeless. They were without God, but they've been brought near now through their union with Christ. But second consideration briefly from verse 13, this being brought near, it's very clear. You can see it just as I can. How is it that they have been brought near? Not only their union with Jesus, but by his blood. By the blood of Christ, this has occurred. Their being brought near is grounded in the historical sacrifice of Jesus. He suffered. He shed his blood and he died. And that shedding of Christ's blood accomplished and provided atonement for sin made it right. Atonement, that's what that word means, at one. Things have been made right by the blood of Christ. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Christ has done this. Christ, in shedding his blood, made satisfaction for sins. He satisfied the justice of God. He satisfied the wrath of God against sin, against our sin. And this shedding of the blood of Christ, it must not be missed, is what established the new covenant. This is the language of Christ himself. Covenants in Scripture are established by blood. The new covenant was established through Christ by his blood. He says this to his disciples when he institutes the Lord's Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So when we see Paul use that language, You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We think atonement. We think satisfaction for sins. We think new covenant where God will save a people from every tribe and language and nation, where he will put his spirit within his people, where he will give his people new hearts and every one of them will know him. All this is something that God will do. Christ is the one through whom that is accomplished, and his blood 
is what establishes that covenant. Though the Ephesian Christians were not the circumcision, thinking again back to verse 11, they had now experienced something greater. They had not experienced physical circumcision that had marked them off as people of God. Because of God's great love and grace, and because of Christ, they had experienced something greater. We can look back now at verse 11 moment. Paul says there about circumcision that it is made in the flesh by hands. Though it served its purpose, circumcision is a temporal reality. God gave it to Abraham as a covenant sign when he promised him people and kings and land. But circumcision always pointed to something greater. Physical circumcision pointed to something greater and different. It pointed to something that was not physical, but spiritual. It pointed to something that was not temporal, but eternal. It pointed, namely, to the circumcision of the heart, the new birth. This is the language of Moses in Deuteronomy at multiple points. This is the language of the apostles in the New Testament. The circumcision of the heart the new birth, being born again, is how God's people would be marked off in the new covenant. When that wonderful promise of the covenant of grace would be established through Jesus, this is how God's people would be distinguished. The Ephesians had experienced this reality. True, they weren't physically circumcised, but they have now been circumcised of heart with the circumcision of Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 2. They were far off. They were separated from Christ. They had no hope and were without God in the world, but no longer. By the grace of God, because of the love and mercy of God, by the blood of Christ, they have been brought near. So Paul has reminded already the Ephesian Christians of what they were. And now he is reminding them again very personally of how their situation changed. He is reminding them again of how it is they have been reconciled to God, namely by and through Christ and what he has done. Which leads us now into our time of reflection. And I have two of these. Reflection number one. In light of what we were, or would be on our own, we have no reason to be proud. Say that again. In light of what we were, or would be on our own, we have no reason to be proud. I think part of what Paul is aiming to do in these verses of Ephesians 2 is to reinforce what he had said in verses 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works that no man may boast. He's reiterating what he had said in Ephesians 2, 1-3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You just following the course of the world, enslaved to Satan and your desires. For some in the room, we have vivid and maybe even fairly recent memories of what we were before we trusted Christ. Others, 
by God's grace, might not remember a time they were not meaning to trust Christ. From a young age, I've been meaning to trust Jesus. Friend, if that's your testimony, praise be to God. I pray it's the testimony of all of my children. Either way, though, whether your conversion is very recent or a long time ago, whether your memories of what you were before you trusted Christ are vivid and near or you don't really even have them, either way, consider what you would be if it were not for the grace of God. As Paul has written in this very letter, you and I, we would be following the course of the world, just doing what everybody else is doing. We would be doing what everybody else is doing and not even thinking twice about it because it's normal. We would be following the God of this world, who is the ancient serpent named the devil. We would be blind. We would be in bondage to him. We would be ruled by our passions and our lusts and our cravings. We'd be slaves to our own desire. Even now, one of the reasons I say it doesn't matter whether you remember your conversion or not, even now, consider our battle as Christians, as people who have trusted Christ, consider the war that we fight. Think about the things that pop into our minds on any given day. Think about the cravings, the passions, the desires, the lusts that we have that rage within us at any given moment. I mean, unsolicited, unprompted, and it's on us. It's got its claws dug in and won't let go. Think about the dark things that we in this room have contemplated as Christians. It would be a, even in a church like ours, where we aim to have a culture where we can be honest about our struggle and confess sin, it would still be a frightening and harrowing reality and a terrifying thought if the things that I have contemplated this week would be flashed across that screen for all to see. Our flesh, brothers and sisters, is so corrupt. I mean, I don't think you need me to tell you that. You live that every day of your life. So do I. We are thinking, this is the astonishing part, I think, for many, and it makes some uncomfortable, and that's okay. We are thinking the things we think, feeling the things we feel, wanting the things we want, craving the things we crave as people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. My good, so the reaction to that is, my goodness, what would we be if it were not for the grace of God? God, help me. I'm trusting Christ. I have your spirit, and I'm a mess sometimes. What would I be were it not for the grace of God? God, brothers and sisters, has protected us from countless amounts of wreckage and ruin. He has kept us from a million sins. And we are going to need Him to keep us from millions more. How desperate we are for the grace of our God.
on our own, we were without hope. Like Paul says to the Ephesians, you were without hope. And friend, on our own, we still are without hope. We don't often think like that. We tend to think that upon being converted, that somehow we're maybe not as needy as we were before we trusted Christ. Not true. We are utterly dependent upon the grace of God every moment. Every moment. Oh, the grace and love and mercy of God. We need, every time we get together, we need to be reminded of these things. One of the reasons that I need this, what we're doing right now, and you need this, is because we have very short memories when it comes to God's grace. We have very short memories when it comes to magnifying and extolling the grace of God. You don't have to take just my word for it. Here's the thoughts of John Calvin on this subject, on this idea. He writes, quote, For when we are endued with the grace of God, and it has pleased Him to give us some good desire to walk in fear of Him, and He has so worked in us by His Holy Spirit that men may perceive that there is now some goodness in us, it may well make us forget at once what we were before. By which means, God's grace is as good as buried. Close quote. We are endued with the grace of God. We are being changed by the Spirit of God. He has given us a legitimate, sincere desire to walk in fear of Him, praise His name. He has worked things in us that other men and women, our brothers and sisters, see. And they say, friend, praise the Lord for what I see in your life. But here, because of our sin and because of our fallenness, here's the danger in that. We can be so quick to forget what we were and to forget what we would be apart from the grace of God. That to use Calvin's language, the grace of God is as good as buried. We would never talk this way. But I think if we honestly assess ourselves, we tend to short sell grace. Now I say that, and there may be some in the room who are thinking, man, there's, there's all these like hyper grace churches out there. First of all, it's a misnomer. You can't emphasize grace too much biblically. What those kind of movements represent is a misunderstanding of what grace is in the first place. Grace is not a methodology in which we overlook wrong and call wrong right. Grace is needed because there is real wrong, and we call it that, and we understand that it's that. Grace is needed because of sin, and sin is never okay. All right, so we tend to short-sell grace in very subtle ways. By definition, they're imperceptible. We just kind of slip back into them. We tend to trust in ourselves. This is a result of the fall. And it never bears good fruit. Never. God's grace is not just how we got started in this thing called the Christian life. As the song says, grace will carry us all the way home. 
We will never stop being debtors to grace. We will never, this side of the resurrection, not be in need of grace. I think that's what Paul is doing in his words to the Ephesian Christians. Remember what you were. We were dead. We were dead. We were lost. We were blind. We were corrupt. We were slaves to our desires and cravings. But because of God, we are in Christ Jesus. Because the Lord did that. Not because we did that. Because of God, we are in Christ, who, as Paul says, has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all of those things. We're not. Christ is. Wisdom. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. We, biblically speaking, did not do anything to bring about our salvation. God in His Son has done everything. So how could we ever boast in anything but in Christ and in the grace of God that has been lavished upon us? We as Christians should be the most joyfully humble people on the planet. Joyfully humble. Rejoicing in Christ and what He's done and humble knowing that we can take absolutely zero credit for any good in us. In light of what we were or would be on our own, we have no reason to be proud. Reflection number two. In light of how we have been reconciled to God, that is, by Christ, we have every reason to rest. Let me say that again. In light of how we have been reconciled to God, that is, by Christ, we have every reason to rest. If it was not Jesus, the God-man, who did what He did, if it was not Jesus who had saved us, we might have reason to fear. If it was not Jesus who saved us, we might have things left to do. But as it stands, Christ has accomplished salvation. As it stands, Christ has completely, not mostly, not significantly, Christ has completely saved us and has completely reconciled us to God. His righteous life is finished his atoning death is finished. He has been raised. He has been exalted. He is seated at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us and he advocates for us when we sin. How could we ever be lost? There is no reason to fear. As was said by theologians of old, Jesus is the fountain from which we draw all that belongs to our salvation. Think with me for just a moment about the sufficiency of our Savior. And by sufficiency, I mean the fact that He has done it and that He is enough. He was sinless, the Son of God, who took upon Himself and atoned and satisfied for our sin in full. The sinless One, who is God and man, took our sin and our corruption upon himself, and dealt with it in full. The punishment that Christ took is 
now our punishment. This is a marvelous thought. When we hear language about judgment, when we hear language about judgment that's coming, we need to understand that our judgment has already been poured out on Jesus. So when people think about the judgment to come, on the one hand, for those of us in Christ, we're looking backward to the fact that Christ has taken that for us. There is no reason to be afraid. Our judgment has already happened. We have been crucified with Christ. His death is my death. His punishment is my punishment. And God is a righteous judge. He will not pour out his justice upon one for whom Christ has taken it. He will not pour out his wrath upon one for whom Christ has satisfied for that. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, friend, has given us his own righteousness and holiness. So as we think about righteousness and holiness that we are to pursue, we strive after it, we pray for it, we work for it, we encourage one another toward it. None of that pursuit of holiness means for one second that we are in need of something that Christ has not provided. How could there be a better righteousness than the very righteousness of God the Son incarnate, the righteous one, who obeyed the law perfectly and gave it to you? There isn't a better righteousness. There isn't a greater holiness than the holiness of Christ counted to wretches by faith. Our Savior is sufficient. He is our great high priest who, unlike all the priests who came before him, is never going to die. He lives forever to make intercession always for his own. He is able to save, therefore, to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. Our Savior is sufficient. As we thought about recently, He is our advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate to plead our case when we sin, not once we've gotten beyond it. When we sin, He pleads for us. We have been united to Him, and we are, as He says, in His hands, and He has promised that no one will ever take us out. He will, as we're going to sing at the end of this service, He will hold us fast. We have a mighty Savior. Ours, brothers and sisters, is perfect peace in Christ Jesus. We have perfect peace in Christ. But let's talk real for a minute. Even though that's true, we know that's true that we have perfect peace in Christ because of what he's done and because he will see it through to the end. We know that he has invited us to come and find rest for our souls in him. We know that's true. And honest talk, many of us do not experience that peace and that rest very often. Maybe I'm alone, but I don't think that many of us experience that peace and that rest, even as Christ would intend us to. We know, on the front end of things, we know well that when we try to help the gospel, we lose the gospel. We know that. 
If you help the gospel, you lose it. Got it. We know that Jesus doesn't need our help to save us. We know that. We learn those things well. But the battle that we fight on a daily basis is to continue to believe that Jesus and what he has done really is enough to save us. That's the battle. Sometimes people object to the gospel as it is biblically presented when we tell people that you're saved by grace, not merit. You don't earn it. And you're saved by faith, not what you do, not works. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's biblical. By faith alone, in Christ alone, you will be saved. Amen. People will object to that, though. And they'll say, well, brother, surely it's not that simple. And then they'll even say this. You're telling me that faith in Christ is what it takes. Trust him. Surely it can't be that easy. To which I would say, as others have said, who said faith is easy? Who said faith is easy? If you think faith is easy, I think we're talking about different things. Because the battle of the Christian life is to believe God. It is to take God at his word. It is to trust that Christ has saved me. And that I actually don't need to do something in order to be saved. That is so counterintuitive to fallen man. So just like I said earlier that we tend to short sell grace, we would never say what I'm about to say out loud. We would never want to acknowledge it. We tend to short sell Jesus. We tend to short sell his work for us, what he did. We tend to short sell his love for us. And in very subtle ways, again, it's subtle, we slip back into works righteousness. We slip back into an economy of law. It's never something we say. We would never do that. It's really, it's, it's almost just like something we breathe. We exhale it. This too is a result of the fall. And it never bears good fruit. Never. We so easily slip back into thinking that we have to do something to contribute to salvation. We so easily slip back into thinking that, here, here we go, our obedience will improve God's love for us. You've been there before? I have. My performance, my obedience or lack thereof, surely has affected how God feels about me. Jesus and what he has done is not just the entrance into the Christian life. It doesn't just get you in. Jesus and what he has done is the lifeblood of the Christian life. Many of us, friends, easily revert back to living in fear, and that's why we don't have peace and rest. John Newton, who was an Anglican minister and hymn writer, he wrote most famously, perhaps, Amazing Grace. Observe this. He wrote of Christ. He said, If he casts none out that come to him, why should we fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints, by that he means our struggles, our sufferings, 
Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief in the remainder of a legal spirit, close quote. That legal spirit is just a way of talking about this tendency to slip back into works righteousness. Our legal spirit causes us to question everything, including Christ's love for us, because we suspect that how Jesus feels about us is tethered to how we're doing. We tend always to do this. We tend to always think that God is altogether like us, that he operates like we do. And we do this with Christ. We think that he relates to us in the ways that we relate to one another. Think about our relationships, as good as they can be at points. They are racked with things that are not always good. Think about how many relationships you have, especially the ones that are most intimate, that are on this constant loop of law, transgression, somebody breaks it, and then judgment. Law, transgression, and judgment on loop 24-7. It's how we think. Our relationships are so often dominated by this need that we all feel to perform and deliver something. Our relationships are so often controlled by anxiety and fear and self-consciousness. So we can tend to think that Jesus relates to us in those ways and on, on those terms. The slip can be subtle. It happens in our hearts and our minds. And we begin, I hope what I'm about to say is clear, we begin to live for things and not from them. We begin to live in pursuit of things, not in light of things, namely the following. We begin to live for justification. We begin to chase after justification rather than living from it and in light of it. We think we've got to do stuff to be justified. We think that we have to do things and chase after our identity in Christ. I need to perform so that I am in him. Instead of living from my identity, I'm in Christ and I'm a child of God. We think that we must live for and in the pursuit of God's love and approval rather than living in light of the fact that he loves us perfectly and has already approved of us in Christ. We live at the end of the day for and in pursuit of final salvation because somewhere deep down we question as to whether it's really ours or not. rather than living knowing that we have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved because of what Christ has done. I'm saying a lot of these things this morning to you as your pastor and as your brother in Christ, as a man who has wrestled with these things my whole life. And I know very well what this feels like. So this is, this is personal even for me as I speak with you in terms of the struggle of the Christian life and what the heart of the battle is. So to end our time together, friends, let's ask this. What is it that brings rest? What is it that brings peace? I would suggest that it is to know and feel, and yes, I use that word, to know and feel the love of Christ for us brings rest and peace. And feel the Utter and absolute sufficiency of Christ for us brings rest and peace. 
A good way to illustrate this, I think, in thinking about the love of Jesus for us and in thinking about how perfect and unshakable the work of Christ is for us is to think of it in these terms. If you have children in the room, they maybe have asked you this question. Mine have. They start to learn about things in the sky. They learn about the sun and the moon. And they're excited about that, as they should be. God has made a marvelous world. And you'll be you know, driving in the car or walking around outside, and it's a cloudy day. And they'll ask you, Dad, where'd the sun go? Where'd the sun go? They don't see it. There are clouds that have obstructed it from view. The love of Christ is like that, the sun. The work of Christ is like the sun. The sun never went anywhere. It's just it's been obstructed from our view by clouds. The clouds of sin, the clouds of doubt, the clouds of fear often keep us from seeing the love of Christ and the unshakable nature of what he's done for us. So, saint, take heart today that the sun of what Jesus has accomplished for you stands unshakable outside of you. How you feel or how you're doing can affect not at all what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. How you're feeling or how you're doing can affect not at all the heart of Jesus Christ that beats with love and grace and mercy toward you. He delights to lavish sinners with love and grace. He invites sinners to come to him that they might know rest and peace. Saints, today, Christ's righteousness for us remains unshaken. His love for us undeterred. His mercy toward us unchanged, always. And so we have peace. Our former life, or what we would be without the grace of God, no longer defines us. Paul writes to the Ephesians, remember what you were, but you're not that anymore. The same is true for us. Our weakness no longer defines us. Our identity in Christ does. Our corruption and our sin no longer defines us. Our status in Christ does. Our transgressions, our iniquity, no longer define us. The love of Christ does. But now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and we need not look to anything else. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you, and we acknowledge our need. We acknowledge the struggle that it is to believe you and take you at your word. You tell us that you are good and faithful to us always, and yet our lives are often hard. You tell us that you love us and that we are your children, but so often, because of our own sin and foolishness, we feel like we're your enemies. So we pray, God, by your grace and by the power of your Spirit, that you would overcome our weakness and our doubts and our fears and our lack of faith. Help our unbelief. Give us grace that we might trust you, that we might trust your Son and the promises that you've made to us in him completely. We pray that when we are wrestling with doubt, when Satan accuses us, and when we are sinning, that we would call to mind who Christ is and what he has done for us. 
We pray, Father, that you would use your table to which we are about to come to remind us and reinforce these great promises and this wonderful news of Christ. And so we pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.